You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Soprano Sandra Radvanovsky and mezzo-soprano Jill Grove are backstage at Lyric. I call it her mad scene. Aida's mad scene. All of her people have said, you know, oh, we're going to have war, we're going to go to war, and Radames is the guy in charge now, and everybody sings Ritorna Vincitore, and I sing it with him, and then I go, oh, dear God, what did I just say? And she gets a little like... What am I going to do? What am I going to do? In the first two pages of her aria, it's this big recitative, but it's big and heavy and dramatic. And she's just bouncing off this idea here and that idea. And oh, my God. And oh, my God. And oh, my God. And then all of a sudden she just goes, she screams, really, a high B flat. And she goes, what am I going to do? I love him, but I love my father. And I love my brothers. And I love my country. What can I do? I know. I'm going to pray to the gods. The one thing about Amneris is you just, you have to sort of make up how long she's been in love with Radames. There's not a big backstory as to, did they know each other growing up as kids? Were, has, is this always a thing? Did he just come on the scene? So it's hard in those first little moments to sort of get how, she's, how she relates to him. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time, we present an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Verdi's Aida. For those of you not familiar with the Discovery Series, it is a series of panel discussions with the singers, conductors, directors, and other creative talent from Lyric's season. Lyric does one session per opera, and they typically happen a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and featured as part of this podcast series. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org. And now let's head over to the UBS Tower for this Discovery Series session on AIDA, featuring Sandra Radvanovsky and Jill Grove. The moderator is Lyric Opera dramaturg and broadcaster Roger Pines. Roger? We have... A lot to cover with our wonderful guest speakers. Now, I should tell you that Marcello Giordani, our Adames, has sent you his regrets that he's unable to join us this evening. But I am thrilled to tell you that our two magnificent principal ladies are both with us. They are familiar figures on the lyric stage and in major opera houses everywhere. So tonight I'll keep the bios brief. Uh, You can read more about them, of course, in our program uh, for the AIDA. Sandra Ravanovsky, who was singing Aida for us, um, sang that role for the first time just last season in Toronto. 
She is closely associated with Verdi Repertoire internationally and is singing her fourth Verdi opera with us following Il Trovatore Ernani and her first ballo in Mascara. She debuted with us in the title role of Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. She sung a huge repertoire at the Met, where she's reprising her Tosca this season. She'll be spending much of the season in Spain, singing Aida in Barcelona, Tosca in Madrid, and Norma in Oviedo. Or actually, she just sang the Norma for the first time in Oviedo quite recently. Um, when Sandra made her Aida role debut with Canadian Opera Company, her Amneris was Jill Grove. Jill was a crucial member of the, the cast of our 2005-06 Ring Cycle, singing Erda, Schwertleite, and the First Norn. She's also sung The Nurse in Our Frau Neschatten and Countess Geschwitz in Lulu. Many of you heard her Met performances in repertoires varied as Die Meistersinger, Peter Grimes, and Strauss's The Egyptian Helen. Highlights of her current season include Unbalo in Mascara in New Orleans, Messiah at Ottawa's National Arts Center, and The Ring Cycle at the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Sandra Ravanovsky and Jill Grove. Okay. I'm sure we have a few people who are going to be hearing Aida for the first time when we do it at Lyric. So here we go, story in brief. Aida, captive princess of Ethiopia, is the slave of Amneris, princess of Egypt. Both women love Radames, captain of the Egyptian guard, but Radames loves only Aida. Victorious in a battle with the Ethiopians... Whatever. <laughs> Victorious in a battle with the Ethiopians, Radames brings prisoners back to Egypt, including Amonazro, king of Ethiopia, and Aida's father, whose identity remains unknown to all but his daughter. Amonazro persuades Aida to draw from Radames the exact route of the Egyptian army in their next battle with Ethiopia. Radames's betrayal is discovered by Amneris, and he is imprisoned. Amneris offers him his life if he will forget his love for Aida. When he refuses to do so and offers no defense in his trial, he is sentenced to be buried alive. Aida steals into the tomb secretly, and the two die together. Is that right? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay. This opera is generally recognized all over the world as the epitome of, quote, grand opera. Yet it is also, I think, at its heart, a deeply personal drama and many scenes involve just two people on the stage. And in fact, the program article for Aida this season is entitled Aida Verdi's Chamber Opera. So we all know, of course, Jill and Sandra, what makes this opera grand, but where is it at its most intimate? Hmm. Well, I think... Yeah, I, oh, please. I, yeah, please. I, I think like most Verdi operas, you could call them most of them chamber operas because there's always scenes where you get the history of what's going on, what happened, what they're planning on doing. That's when you get all the storytelling, and that's where I find the very intimate moments. On, And for instance, in this opera, the duet that I have with Jill is very intimate. I have a very intimate duet with my father, with the tenor. But then they're always interrupted by some big chorus thing. I'm always interrupted. I never get to finish. Yes, what, no, you never get to finish. No, I never get to finish. No, never get to finish. But I find most Verdi operas, like Trovatore, we have, we have our arias, and then which are very intimate. And then you have these big scenes that follow them. So I think Verdi was, was very good in his use of equally 
keeping it very intimate. And then when people are just starting to get a little bored, you know, they go, oh, look at it, and here's the pretty music with the chorus and everything. So I think there's a lot of that in this opera. Um, and you, Jill, in your, in your scene with Aida, your, the second scene, the big duet, there are moments that are really very sort of inward looking, it seems to me, very subtle. Do you agree? I mean, oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Especially, you know, Amneris really never gets to have a moment where she sort of exposes what she's thinking. Everything is sort of an innuendo, and uh, she's very duplicitous, and she's very... Um, She's very lonely, and she has a huge persona, you know, which comes in this, these big public, you know, she's the princess, and so she's been looked at all of her life, but then, you know, she's very um, inward, you know, alone and socially awkward, because she really doesn't understand, but, you know, the scene with uh, with Aida, it's very, um, you know, instead of just coming out and asking her a question, she spends about four or five pages sort of just manipulating her into... Uh, like this, I've talked about the death of all of her people, and you know, I just make her this wet noodle of a being, and then yell Type at her. Typecasting. Yes, <laughs> whatever. And um, you know, so there's a lot of intimate moments on both parts. Now, are those intimate moments? Are they written pianissimo in the score? Are there a lot of, of, of piano and pianissimo markings that people may have forgotten about? I would probably say more for me. Yeah. Uh, because I think Aida is the more tortured soul. Yeah. She's definitely the more tortured soul. Yeah, so when she's tortured, she's saying... I have saying, a palace. <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I'm not that tortured. you don't. <laughs> and no, dancers. I, no, I think definitely for me, and as well the tenor, we, we do have a lot of mm-hmm. soft singing. So I guess that shows that we're matched and we're supposed to be together. Whatever. Yes. Opposites attract as well. <laughs> There's an incredible moment, Sandra, that I think is, let's see... I think the fourth phrase in your role, so like 30 seconds, you know, into into your entrance, where suddenly you you leap up the octave to, I guess it must be like a soft... Mm -hmm. And that must be... Love him for that, that yeah. And that to me, suddenly, I mean, that's a perfect example, I think, of suddenly she's sort of pulling inward. Well, I think the way most of the pianos are written in this score, for me, uh, they're not what we would call subito piano. So she doesn't just start them out piano. She attacks the note and then she digresses back from it. So into the piano. So I think it's always this fear of her saying what's on her mind, of her being beaten down by Amneris, by by all of her people. So she she's, because I too am a princess, but I'm afraid to speak what's on my mind. So it's always this, yes, oh, I'm sorry for saying that. And that happens frequently also in the duet with Jill. So it's never really a true just piano. There's a few of those. but So it's Verdi really using the music for very interesting psychological purposes. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. He's great at Always that. Always does. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for both of you, Verdi has been a pretty important component of your repertoire. And it's interesting to assess the particular challenges that lead an artist to sing one Verdi role at a particular time in the career and leave another Verdi role until a few years down the road. Mm -hmm. So how have you decided on the particular moment in your careers when you considered yourself ready to sing a particular Verdi role on the stage? Mm. Uh, Oh, she's Uh, looking at me. She's looking at me. What was your first Verdi? My first Verdi would have been Balo. 
Um, now a lot of, because my voice is on the lower side of a mezzo, Balo makes perfect choice. It's one mm -hmm. act, it's low, it's, you know, it's short-ish. And, you know, whereas like Ebony is a little later in my career. Now, because it, it's a lot higher, it's got the tessitura sits a lot higher. There's a lot more different colors up there other than just loud. And you um, have done it on a stage. I have a lot, yeah, but yeah. not I, not a grown-up stage. And you've that. done Azucena. And Azucena. Um, and Il Trovatore. Yeah, so, you know, the progression for me has been sort of low to high. Um, whereas for maybe for a, a, a more dramatic soprano we met, so it might go the other direction. But. When you got into the Verdi repertoire, had you ever sung anything in public that was sort of as weighty and required as much sort of you know, broadness of sound as something like Ulrika? Uh, closest would have been Erda in the Vaishnava mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. would probably be, but not in the very, obviously, um, in the Italian repertoire that, that was most, mostly in German. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Different but I don't know style. much about the soprano. Mm -hmm. Sandra, did you, did you begin with Trovatore? Uh, yeah. I'm looking at my mother. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, uh, yes, I would say Trovatore quickly followed by Violetta and Traviata and Louisa Miller. Ah, okay. Um, Which all makes sense if you look at them as a group. Right, and, and the soprano is a little different because he wrote a little differently for sopranos um, in that there's a lot more agile singing, so you have to have coloratura to sing a lot of the earlier Verdi, which he didn't even write for mezzos in earlier Verdi stuff. Um, and then you have the middle stage, which is a little bit more, not as much coloratura, but still a little weighty, like um, something like Simon Bocanegra, Don like Carlo. Don Carlo, Il Trovatore. And then you get to the third class of Verdi, which is Aida, Ballo and Maschera, Otello. Otello, Forza del Destino, things like that, where you have to be, as I call, grown up to sing that. So um, I came to Aida only last year, and I think there's a very, un unlike the mezzo repertoire, there's a very natural progression to sing the Verdi roles. And you start with the lighter, and also the younger characters, like Louisa Miller is a very young girl, Violetta is a very young woman, and it shows in their vocal writing. Whereas uh, Don Carlo, she has a little more experience in life and in Ballo and Mascara she has a little more experience in life and it shows also in the vocal line and the weight and uh, and then you go get to Aida and the difference between that and all the other ones is that it just sits a little lower and you have to be able to get some of those <clears throat> chest notes out. Yeah, the comparison that I was hoping both of you could make because this this it's an opera that both of you sing, mm -hmm. and it's um, and it's recently in our minds. We just did it last year. Is of course Ballo. Mm -hmm. So the the I think it'd be interesting to hear you compare the, the specific difficulties of the of your role in that opera with your role in Aida. Um. The difficulties. Hmm. Balo actually is much trickier for me now than Aida. I know the shock really? look. I, I know. know. Really? It is. It starts really low and it sits really low. And so it's very easy to get really heavy and it makes the rest of the role just oh, sound. It just is uh, constantly just trying to push it out. Down You're just kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Amneris is, you know, she's 
she's sort of up in that upper middle register where it just sort of feels good to sing for a minute. And then the kind of the registers, you get to the high and the low. And then it's it's just an easier kind of a soaring thing. It's longer, obviously, and it's a lot more extreme. But um, it's interesting because, you know, I, I think she was, if she wasn't our first Dumnaris in the history of lyric, then she was the second. Astrid Varney, who was a Wagner mm. soprano. Yeah. She, she sang Amneris here, yeah. which I thought was a really interesting Well, it's, it's high, and a lot yeah. of, you know, a lot of the lower sopranos mm. totally love it. I mean, it's a great role. It's one of the, you know, dramatically one of the best roles. It's, you know, she has such fun music, and, you know, she's just gets to be all over the place emotionally, and, you know, she's a really great character to play. Um, Sandra, most... Aida's are also Amelia's, not always vice versa. Are they quite similar? In some ways, yes. And that's the tessitura, where the most of the role lies. Uh, but then you have the length of Aida. Oh my gosh, she never leaves the stage, poor girl. Um, that's why it's called Aida. <laughs> <laughs> Big bucks, yes. Thank you very much. But also, Aida has another element that Balo doesn't have as much. And Aida does have a lot of that high, floaty singing. And everyone waits for one note <laughs> in Aida. One note. Yep. And it is in your big aria in the third act. And it's in the O Patrimia, and there is this big high C, big high C, <laughs> exposed. And then lovely Mr. Verdi put a big diminuendo down to a pianissimo on it. And that scares 99.99% of sopranos that could sing Aida. But, the, but it doesn't scare you. That is just so extraordinary to hear you sing that. I mean, I'm just... Tatua, tatua. Oh, boy. It's, I, I tell you... I listened to that performance from Canadian Opera Company um, on the radio, and I've never heard that high C sung the way Sandra Ravanovsky sings. No it. pressure, none. It no pressure. Stunning. It's, amazing. it's <laughs> truly amazing. It's really stunning. Thanks. So, Jill, you precede Aida on stage. You have this brief dialogue with Radames. Yes. And so that opening scene gives you like less than 10 minutes to set the character in your audience's mind. So what are you hoping to accomplish in characterizing her in that scene? In the scene with Rodimus? Yeah, before Aida gets on the stage. And then once Aida appears. Well, I think definitely you see her manipulating, her manipulative side. I mean, she's never direct until you've kind of pushed her into a corner. Um, And then she just sort of, damns you to hell. But other than that, she's really a lovely girl. Um, she, um, Not really. Yeah. You know, you know, she wants to come, and the one thing about Amneris is you just, you have to sort of make up how long she's been in love with Rodimus. There's not a big backstory as to, did they know each other growing up as kids? Were, has, is this always a thing? Did he just come on the scene? So it's hard in those first little moments with him to sort of get how she's how she relates to him what is he saying to her he's not even talking to me he's talking about her because she's sort of turning on the charm right just no he has just sung celeste aida right so he's all happy and i come on and say you're so happy it must be me and he's like um sure okay and he's really happy because you know the the goddess is going to come down and say who's going to rule the army and 
Ramfis has just come and said, you know, it's probably going to be you. So he's really sort of in that boy, I get, I'm going to go get to fight the bad guys. I'm going to be, you know, a big sword. <laughs> and Aida. And I come in and I say, wow, who put that, you know, who put that look on your face? It must be, you must be in love. Could it be me? And then he's like, I don't, why are you talking to me like this? And then, of course, you know, we separate and we have our inter, you know, he's saying whatever he's saying about what does she see, and I'm sort of like, oh, my God, he's in love with somebody else. Um, and then Aida comes in, and he, not so subtly, Marcello, um, turns and, <laughs> you know, puts all the attention on him, and then uh, immediately my uh, anger and scorn and jealousy immediately go to him, her. It, do you, you know, know it's, it's Aida? Do you know your rival is Aida just because of the way he's looking at her? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. it's fast. That's and it. plus, she's a little cuckoo crazy. I mean, you know, she's a little bit... She's already looking for the bad things to happen anyway. You know, she's... And so everybody's a threat. She's paranoid. She is... It's not a far cry if, if I'm in love with Rodimus and he looks at another woman, even, you know, half a second, it's like, oh, my God, he's in love with her. She's got to die. And, you know, she just, and it's, it's that fast. I mean, you know, and it's that like, oh, she's dead. She's gone. And then I spend the rest of the hour figuring out how to do that. Um, but so she's just, she's very impulsive. Very, very impulsive. It's interesting that while he gives her an enormous scene, the judgment scene in the last act, he doesn't give an aria to Amneris mm-hmm. that you can take out of context the way you can take Aida's to Arya's out of context. So, Jill, do you ever fantasize over, you know, if Verity were around and you were going to ask him to compose an Arya for Amneris, what the, the sentiments... I always of- fantasize about that, really. <laughs> <laughs> but since you're asking me that question... What kind of Arya? What you- kind of Arya? I think it would really be to sort of give a history of her love for Rodimus and sort of be able to explain... Is this a true love? I mean, is this something that has, you know, she really feels? Is this an infatuation of a first love where it's really not about him at all? It's just about all these feelings? Because, I mean, we're kind of young in theory. We're well, young characters. Well, what do you think? Is it, is it real love? Well, she feels I like to think so. I like to think we've been friends for since we were kids. And you want it to be something more. And I want it to be something more. But I'm the princess, and... I, you know, I don't think um, Rodimus has anything negative about me until I want to kill him. But other than that, you know, we've had a lovely time together. And he's grown up to be in the army, and I'm the princess, and it is the way it should be. And we should get married, and everything should be fine. And so she's the one that keeps wanting to push it a little further. He's kind of like, you know, no, kind of love your slave, sorry. And, you know, that's where the thing goes. Because for me, it's just too... The judgment scene especially is so big and such a dramatic arch that, or arc, arc, dramatic arc, arc, it would be an arc, right? Sorry. That it really does need some meat. That love needs some meat. It can't yeah. just be an infatuation. Like a, nice and pretty lyrical singing. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. That it's, would be nice in an aria. Can it? you work on that? Can you do that? Can, you do that? <laughs> Can we call up Mr. Verdi? Can we commission an aria for Sandra, you end the first scene with the first of your two great arias, Ritorna Vincitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really all about the conflicts going on in Aida's mind at that moment. Mm-hmm. So how do you move from one... I mean, in that... 
Arya, it seems to me you were moving really from one thought to another in an almost dizzying way. There's so much to cover. I call it her mad scene. Aida's mad scene. You know, Why? Lucia doesn't just have it. I just think she's so distraught because right before she sings it, the big, all of her people have said, you know, oh, we're going to have war, we're going to go to war, and Radames is the guy in charge now, and everybody sings, Ritorna Vincitore, and I sing it with them, and then I go, oh, dear God, what did I just say? And she gets a little like, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And the first two pages of her aria, it's this big recitative, but it's big and heavy and dramatic, and she's just bouncing off this idea here and that idea, and oh my God, and oh my God, and oh my God, and then all of a sudden she just goes, she screams, really, a high B-flat, and she goes, what am I going to do? And that's when she start, kind of starts to calm down and says, okay, let's look at this like in the real way. I love him, but I love my father, and I love my brothers, and I love my country. What can I do? I know, I'm going to pray to the gods. And that she does that a lot. <laughs> so it's there. Are, I suppose it's, maybe like four at least distinct sections of this. Yeah, pe- of- absolutely. But each one, as you can sense, each one kind of calms down a little bit more. It starts frenetic, frenetic, and then she sings, the screams, the high note. She tries to calm herself down. Then it gets frenetic, but not as frenetic. You see what I mean? The linsana parona. Still not as crazy as And then she ends up with a Very mild And I think she's just then At that point realizes what she has to do And that she has no choice Is it do you think it's sort of cruel of Verdi in that all this incredibly agitated stuff happens like in the first half and then you have your some of your most sustained legato in the whole role coming at the very end of the whole thing? Love him, yeah. But he does that in all of the Verdi roles that I sing. If you really... The, in, for instance, in Ballo and Mascara, the first aria I sing is the Eccolorido Campo, which is no small little sing, by the way, you know? And so she gets all that screamy, screamy, screamy stuff out, and then she has to, in the next act, sing this beautiful, obligato, you know, aria with just the celli, the morro, which you go from this to that. And then, for instance, in Vesperi Siciliani, she sings Arrigo Parle Ancora, and then the next act sings the Bolero. Which is very dazzling Day and, and night. Yeah. Trovatore, she sings Tacelo Notte, the first thing when she walks out on stage, thank you. And then she goes and sings completely something different, Amor Sularinose. So he does that to the sopranos, I think just to torture them, because I really think he hated them, because he was married to a soprano. And I get that. If you talk to my husband, he would do the same thing to me. So, you know. But it's it's difficult. It's It's very hard pacing yourself and that is always I don't know if you find that with any Verdi opera it's all about pacing yourself so that when you do get to that beautiful O Patria Mia in the third act that you still have enough steam to sing that infamous high C let's talk a little bit about this Aida Amneris relationship um Jill is it too strong to say that Amneris is really cruel in her treatment of Aida when in this big confrontation that they have cruel? Well, yes, she does treat her very cruelly. Yes. She's not a cruel human being. I think she's very lonely, and I think she's very distraught. And I I think she just lashes out in the power that she has over her, in the because she, 
she has no power where she wants it, which is over Rodimus. I mean, she has she can't even get his attention. Omneris can't. And this woman just walks in and gets his complete, like, so that's what Omneris wants, is that sort of love, that sort of, a, that kind of gaze. But she only gets sort of subjugation. You know, she's just the princess, and so it's just sort of this. So, yes, I mean, it is cruel. Um, but yeah. th- doesn't she at one point say to Aida, he's dead, he died in battle, and then she says, uh, 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 he, uh, he's living after all. I mean, right. that to me. She's trying to get it's, her it's, to say, I, oh, no, he's died, I love him, or, oh, yay, he's alive, I love him. She wants to know how, she knows how Rodimus feels. But her last hope is if she's not on the playing field, then at least there's still a chance. But if Aida loves Rodimus too, I am alone. I am, there's nothing I can do. Because that's what he wants, that's what he's going to get. And so when she finally finds out, you know, that, yes, Aida really, Aida does love him. What is the moment? What is the moment where you know? She says the- it in the, in the um, after the big fight and after sort of this kind of weaving around of this story of saying that he's died, but no, no, he's alive. And then, you know, Omneris is like, tremble, slave, you know, you're under my control. She says you know, yes, it's true. I do love him. And that's when I'm just like, oh. You know, that's the worst thing she could have said to me. She could have said anything else. And, but that, I'm done for. Everything I want is dead then. Sandra, is there a moment in this duet where you can make clear to Omneris that you are a princess too? Almost. 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 Because she says... In, in, this, in this very moment, almost, that, that Jill is talking about, she says, Jill says, um, yes, that he, Rodimus is alive. You love him. Well, I love him too. And, uh, but I'm your ruler and I'm y- your princess and you should bow down to me. And I get a little like, really? Well, I'm a princess too. But she doesn't say it in that What does words. she say? say um, We're equal. She gets out that we're, that we're equal, ah. but she doesn't say that. Uh, she laughs and she says, you, my rival, you need to know that we're equal. And then she realizes, well, what did I just say? I almost gave away my whole cover. And that's when she sings, when Aida sings that beautiful, beautiful line that you're happy and you're powerful. And the only thing I have to live for is the love of Rodimus. Um, can you mention your favorite, your, your, your moment in the duet th- that you feel is unsurpassed for sheer beauty and the moment in the duet that you think is unsurpassed for sheer dramatic power? Is there a moment that just stands out in your mind in both areas? Well, the beauty would come from her. Yeah, that line that I just said, you're powerful <laughs> and you're yeah, gorgeous. the princess. It's beautiful music. It's a really beautiful And low, line. too, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. And for sheer power. And me, power. too. I mean, just sheer power. I mean, I also have a low line as well where she's on the steps and, you know, the where you are under my control. You will always be under my control. The you whole duet, though, I mean, it's, it's just so beautifully written. The, the arc, 
Arc. Arc. Good the use arc of this, this duet is so beautifully written, and you'll all yeah. see that um, when you come to the production. But it's, it's just, he doles it out just mm-hmm. enough, and then he reels you back in. And Jill will give a little bit more, and then, oh, you know, don't go too far away. You know, i got to get more out of it. And then the moment when she just says, okay, here it comes, you know, and she just pounces on Aida, and poor yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, there's a great moment with... Uh, he makes the transition by having uh, you hear the trumpets off stage, mm-hmm. and that is sort of the bridge to the the final section, mm-hmm. which I think is brilliant. Well, yeah, when she says, "Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention um, when I'm going to go marry Rodimus, and he's going to be crowned, you know, the warrior king, that you have to stand next to me. Exactly. You have to come follow. Poor, me. poor thing, and stand right there when while after I'm I've just know. said that I love him too. Yeah. <sighs> Like, well, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the triumphal scene introduces us to another major character, who is Aida's father, king of Ethiopia, Amanazro. So, Sandra, how would you characterize their relationship in the little time that we see the two of them together? It's just two scenes. I know. It, it is. It's a very brief, and but very intense. And I will say that is the key between the two of them, the very intense, because... Her father, Amanazro, knows that he has to get this information across to her. This is what we need to do. And he has such little time that he can give her this information. And I think Aida is completely enamored with her father, a typical father-daughter kind of relationship that she just looks up to him and says, anything you say, Dad, I'll do. For instance, what in our duet after, when we meet Amanazro, the duet that I have with Amanazro, is beautifully beautifully written and it shows the relationship between a father and a daughter and and how sometimes you just have to do things that your parents say and not question them now you talked with return of Inchitor about how mm-hmm. emotional it is well this duet with Amanazo is hair-raisingly emotional so Incredible. what is the secret in this to keeping your own emotions under control so that they don't interfere with the singing. Well, that's always the key now, isn't it? Trying to to, to stay behind that line emotionally, because in, once you step over it, boy, you're just done. In your other Verdi, is there anything that you would sing that is quite as emotional as this Aida Amenazar duet? Oh, the duet from Louisa Miller with Daddy is also quite, quite striking. And... Um, but this is but I, this, this is, is so raw. It's oh almost verismo, I have to say. It's very verismo. It's it's like Tosca in a way, and that it's in real time. So what he's saying to me, I respond back. There's no he says something and then I say so. I repeat what he says. It's very much a conversation, and it, it is very difficult. I have to say, especially with Gordon Hawkins, who's our lovely Amanazar. He's a wonderful wonderful singer, wonderful actor on stage and very sympathetic and this big teddy bear and I just want to go up and hug him and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But um, it, it, it's hard to, to, to not get too emotional, I'm sure, for you too in, in certain things. And, and I <clears throat> just have to remember, you have to stop and think, wait a second, this is just an opera, this is just an opera. It's not real life, it's not real life. And that always has to go through the back of your mind, you know. Um, like all the duets in this opera, the one that follows, <laughs> the one with Amanazro, is for you and Radames, and it's lengthy and it's very challenging. So what are each of your characters in that duet trying to accomplish at the start of it, and 
do you succeed? Kind of. <laughs> well, the another duet that I sing, mentioning how long Aida is, this is duet number three for me in the opera. And um, it's called Aida. I'm sorry, yeah, <laughs> it's called Aida. Um, the, the duet with Radames is very difficult. It's very difficult to stage for me, and it's very difficult vocally. Oh my gosh, because you've been on stage, you sang O Patri Mia. Thank you very much. You sang the duet with Daddy, crying your eyes out. Thank you very much. And now you have to tell Radames that, Radames that no, I don't love you. And, um, and try to get some information out from him, the man that you love, and you're going to go and betray him. And it's a fine, fine line that you have to play in this duet with not being too coy, and, but also not being a bit of a... Can I say it a bitch? You know, because if she were to tell him just, you know, leave me alone, go away, he might just go away. So you have to to kind of, it's a little dance that she does with Rodimus that, you know what, just go, go and, so she plays the guilt trip. I think she learned a lot from Amneris, you know, how to be mean and cruel. So she says, you know what, you don't love me, you love her, go be with her. Yeah, I learned that from you. And then he says, no, 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 I love you. And I said, well, if you loved me, then you would run away with me. Guilt more. And so it's, it's a very difficult duet. And she turns on the sex appeal at one point, doesn't she? A little bit. High and soft again. Sings high and soft. So there you go. When, when, she, when she does all lovey things, she sings high and soft. Um, Jill, you have in the judgment scene... Probably the most formidable scene, single scene that Verdi ever gave a mezzo-soprano, it seems to me. Um, Marilyn Horn commented once that the difference between singing Verdi and singing the bel canto composers that she was so well known for was that Verdi hammered away at the middle voice and he did it over a much larger orchestra. Is that how you view the role in general and the judgment scene in particular? In terms of how it's written? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sit in the middle of your voice and you have a huge orchestra right in the middle of it. And the middle of the voice is just not the loudest physically of your voice. So you're the higher ranges or the lower ranges are typically just bigger. So that middle section, it's difficult um, to, to sort of find the right sound. Um, now, being a lower mezzo... I am blessed with a little sound in the middle of that register. And so I don't find it as tricky or as um, imposing. For me, it's more of the character and more um, the high notes coming at the end are much more my, you know, like, okay, here comes a B flat. <laughs> okay. Not just you once. Know. How many times? Yeah, you know, and it's, you know. You mean you're at the tip of, you know, I'm a low mezzo. It's a tip of, no, it's a tip of my range is, you know. Um, and so for me, it's sort of keeping the emotions under control, not running away with the acting part of it. And like she said, just kind of staying right behind it so that you're believable. I mean, you're in the scene, but you're also not physically feeling that anger because if you are, then I'm pretty much done for trying to sing a high B flat. But... Um, you have so much to cover emotionally in that scene. You're on stage from the beginning to the end. 
Do you like being very physically active in the scene? Does that help? You know, it depends. It depends on the tempo. This particular conductor um, goes very, very fast. And so the, the more still that I can be, the better. Because so, then you, you can just kind of conserve your energy and your the intention of the line. Because if I go fast and he goes fast, then we're both bad, 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 bad. But if you have a slower tempo, I do like to be a little more agitated because it keeps a little more energy physically in the line. So in this production, it's a, it's a little more still than, say, in Toronto. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, we'll talk about that in a yes. minute. So, yeah. So, I mean, it really depends. You know, it's a marriage between the voice, the music, and your acting physical body. And so trying to balance between what's coming from the pit and what you're doing on stage, you know, it's just a balancing act. There's a really interesting portion. I mean, the way that scene works, she has her opening recitative alone, then she has her duet with Rodimus where she's trying to persuade him to forget about Aida. Then there's this sort of bridge passage before the trial begins, because don't forget the trial is off stage and she is on stage listening to it. So I wanted to ask you about that sort mm. of, bri- you, you know where I mean, before the yeah. trial starts. What is going on there? With her? Yeah. Well, I think she's finally realized what she has done. Because um, she could have st- stepped in and saved him if she really wanted to. I mean, he has, he made a huge mistake. I mean, he did betray the the way that the, the his country was going to go with the war, and he told the king of the guy of the bad guys, "This is how it's going to happen." So, yes, he he totally messed up, and so that is what he's on trial for is for the treason um, and the betrayal of the country. So, and whether or not she could have actually done done something, who knows? But she could have tried. She could have talked to Daddy the King. She could have done something. And instead, you know, when he doesn't, when Rodimus doesn't renounce Aida, because all I ask him to do, the only thing I ask him to do was to forget about Aida. Forget about Aida. You can live. We can live in my pretty palace. We'll have, you know, pretty dancers. It'll be great. But no, he wouldn't do it. And so so I'm like, fine, fine. You have turned the love that I felt for you into complete hatred die. I don't care. And then once the priest, you know, once I realize that this is done, I have, the priests are coming in to do the trial. I am out. I have no power. And she's really realizing that what she has done out of just stupid jealousy, you know, that she has caused, um, you know, all of this in her mind, all of this to happen. You know, she's a huge narcissist as well as, you know, Anything, everything's her fault. You know, everything was because of something that she did, and really, not really. Um, so that bridge between b- before the priests come in and start the trial is really the desperation, and you really see the raw emotion of just a young woman that has used her power for bad and really realized it. She kind of grows up in that little moment of like, oh, wow, I will live with this forever. We haven't said very much about the Lyric Opera production, which is having what I think is its fourth revival since it was new in 1983. What do you think the particular strengths of this production are? I think the, from what I've seen, I think the sets and the costumes are beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it gives enough of what 
people are coming to see because there is a certain amount of expectation with most people that come to see Aida. There is an an opulence and a, you know, this grandeur that they want to see. Very traditional, pretty pretty costumes, you know. No animals. They want to see a princess. They want to, you know. Yeah. It's Um, beautiful to look at. It's beautiful. It's strikingly beautiful. Um, Sandra, what are you doing about your um, Ethiopian makeup? (laughs) <laughs> well, this production has, has apparently been through a few machinations. Uh, my people are blue. Her people are pink, pinky, pepto-bismol yeah, colored. kind of weird. I... Not my idea. Yeah. Um, so normally Aida is, is colored, black, and um, as well as Daddy. But in this production, Daddy is... Blue? Very Avatar. Very Avatar. <laughs> Very Smurfs. Yes. Yeah. And his people are blue, but I'm not blue, and I don't get it. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm slightly bronzy, um, but... We're in the desert, I it, we're in the, I think we're I'm in the same color as Jill, so I'm yeah. going to go that she wanted me to be the same color as her because I was her hand servant. Yeah, I don't want to blow That's what I'm going to go with, and, and She's complete that's what I tell myself. So Costumes? Yeah. What about the costumes? Ooh. Yes, Aida good. has very pretty costumes. There's just a little, I have to tell you, the little rivalry that we have going on here. <laughs> my very first Aida was last year in Toronto. My very first one, right? And I'm thinking, oh, finally I get to wear these beautiful costumes as Aida, blah, blah, blah. And what happens? But the director decides, oh, no, Aida's going to be a cleaning lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think Carol Burnett. Think yeah, Carol, Carol Burnett. With except with very dirty hair. Yeah, and and Keds. I had little, little, little sneakers shoes. on, little, little special shoes, as Jill called them. Yes. And and I had a broom, and I I swept the floor. I was at the very beginning of the opera, sweeping the floor, because that's what Aida does. And who gets the pretty costumes? Not one. No, not two. No, no I had a few pretty costumes. Yes. Yeah. So when Take I got my costume and I saw her costumes, I kind of went. Because <laughs> wait, who did they make the new costume for? <clears throat> who would oh, that whatever. be? That would be me. Yes. yes, my costumes have been through. I think all four productions, <laughs> but I only have one. So I only have one. They had to really do it so well, it and really it is pretty. gorgeous blue. Blue as you are. Sorry, sorry, costume. It's really gorgeous. It, it is beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. thank with, you. So it with is. the beautiful costumes that Amneris had in Toronto, were you like nineteen fifties movie queen or something like that? What were, what were they? No, it was sort of like. Princess of Azerbaijan, kind of. It was kind of suits and very sleek. Mad Manny, Mad Man, kind of. What was his What was his explanation for that exactly? Yeah, but Iranian, Iranian. Yeah, she was like an Iranian princess that has a lot of money that's trying to Americanize herself. Can you tell we like this production? Yeah, it was was a little bit wonky. It's good. Yeah, yeah, a little wonky. So and where was the Nile in all of this? Was there a, <laughs> no, no, was no. there a Nile? We were not in Egypt. No, no, no. no. We, we were, were in, in a big building. Yeah, we were in like some Arab country. Arab country. And then as the opera went along, we went lower and lower down in the building. Yep. So we ended up in the 
dungeon, and that is where we died. But yeah. it was a very huge dungeon, so we sang a lot. Yes, because we had a lot of air. Weeks and weeks to die in there. Weeks and weeks, <laughs> and and my huge. scene with with Daddy was in the storage room. <laughs> Which, did, they had a crocodile in there, like a stuffed crocodile. There was crocodile a crocodile, but yeah, they, they, that's where they, the Nile I think was. They nixed it because the, yeah, that was there. They thought they thought it was too too much like Aida. I mean, heaven forbid heaven that forbid we're we singing. Like so, Daddy and the big duet that I sing with Daddy throws me. This is good. We love this production. Threw me on a chair and proceeded to tie me up with an electrical cord. Oh, right. In that Remember that? Right. Yeah. In, like the most emotional part part of this duet, he's tying you up. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, he's saying, don't you, don't you see it all there? Don't you see your people, you know, falling down? And, oh, look, there's one person in there in the group of all your Ethiopians. It's your mother, and she's, you know, cursing you. And I'm being wrapped in the chair with the electrical cord, as you do. I mean. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah. So you Perfect made sense. it work for yourselves. Somehow. We did the best we could. I got to say, I give total props to Sandra because Thank you. there was absolutely no triumphal scene. It oh, was yes. all I eat is dream. <laughs> Bless her heart. Can Thank we you. talk about, I yeah. mean, at first it got like a baby an inch better. And I'm just realizing this, this is going to be taped. This is taped, isn't it? This isn't going to be played for... I have work coming up at Canadian Opera, so yes, let's not... I, love, um, I live in anyway. Toronto. We, I'm sorry, wait. Uh, we love the tr- was, Canadian Opera I loved opera working at the company we of love Canadian it. Opera. Absolutely. This production, though, was quite interesting. It was. But the whole triumphal scene really was just sort of My silhouettes night. of things happening in her head. and Me being wrapped in a flag and then thrown between one man and the next. This is Aida. I mean, Aida. And people yeah. came up to us and said, wait a second, isn't she a princess? Yeah. <laughs> mm, no, not oh, so much. Yeah. Orchestrally yeah. and chorally. Yeah. We're moving this, on this, now. Thank you. I think on. we vented. Yes. We feel yes. much right. better now. Gosh. Or- I realized Orche- I still had words about all that. Orchestrally and chorally, it really is a rewarding work, Aida. So what is your favorite choral episode and why? Well... <laughs> Big triumphal march, yeah, kind of I mean, out there. But I, I will. Sorry, go ahead. I do have to say one little funny thing. In the big triumphal march, right? We Jill gets carried on in this big, beautiful throne, and I'm because she's a princess, yeah. and I'm carrying a crown next to her, and the chorus are right, right next to us, you know, singing this beautiful music and this big high B flat. All the tenors sing, and the tenors are right here and I can't move and let me tell you when we did that scene four or five times the other day (laughs) imagine the whole chorus of the Chicago lyric screaming into one of your ears you know and I can't move because well because of her stay close to me so yeah, it, but it, but it is beautiful music. Sorry, it is. No, it's beautiful music, and I love the temple scene too. The whole yeah. second yeah. second scene with the when they're blessing themselves to go off to war or whatever with the chorus. It's beautiful. Yeah. Do you have a favorite instrumental moment in the show? Gosh, I do. Oh, good. The 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 prelude to O Patrimia mm. with the winds there is just so beautiful. And the, the oboe playing the the theme, you know, of my country, the O Patria Mia, it, it just sounds like 
it's crying, you know, it's, it's weeping music and it just gets you in the mood for singing O Patria Mia because it's so beautiful. Now with both of you, with both of your characters, do you have an identifying theme? And if so, can you hum or whistle a couple of bars of it? Mine kind of sounds like the Wicked Witch of the West. It's like... Yep. It's like... Yeah, it's that sort of... Always scheming music. I guess mine would be... Because she sings that a lot. Yeah. People are so overwhelmed by the visual opulence of this piece and the vocal opulence of it that they don't always stop to think that there is some food for thought in Aida. So what do you find most moving about this drama that people really can actually carry away with them? Well, for me, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious the, the either the love of your country and having to leave your country because you love someone else. And for me, it's, it's, I'm American by birth, but I moved to Canada for my husband. So there's always that, that, well, not for my husband. We decided to live in Canada. I see him looking at me. It's okay. Um, but there's always and that. There's always been that rife between America and Canada that you have to bridge. That's true. <laughs> no, but you know, it's, it's a lot of people have that. I mean, United States is the melting pot, really. And so I'm sure there's always people here that are wondering what their homeland is like. And it's always, it's always in you where you were born, you know, it's always that, that kernel that, you know, I'm American or I'm, you know, African or whatever. And that conflict of giving that up, I think so many people have dealt with that and not, maybe not us, but our, our grandparents when they moved here to the, to the States and also loving the wrong person. Once again, Verdi, Verdi is very good at doing that, especially for the soprano talking about falling in love with the wrong person. She shouldn't be in love with them, but yet you can't choose who you love. And that's a theme in almost all the Verdi operas. I think you said when you were doing the interview for our magazine that, uh, that it was great that you were actually coming back to your patria mia because you're from mm-hmm. the area, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yes. That's I cool. love Canada. I, I love, <laughs> <laughs> my, my husband's going to disown me. <laughs> no, but yes, I was born and raised here. And, um, you know, that little kernel that's inside of you, it's still home. You know, you get off the plane and you go, oh, you know, it's, it's familiar. And I think that's what it is. It's a familiarity. And, and that's what everybody feels when they go home. Jill, when you think of what this opera gives us emotionally besides you know, this glorious music, what comes to your mind? Well, just from my own standpoint, really to uh, the power of your actions and the power um, really having so much and not, not being satisfied. You know, she just wants what somebody else has. You know, she Omnirus could have anything she wanted, except that one person. And she just loses her entire mind over the one person that she can't have. And, you know, to really, you know, yeah, I I think just to know the power that you have and the power um, to do good and to do bad. You know, in, in making the decision, in really living with the consequences of the impulse 
just to make somebody hurt, just to, if you just live in that energy of I'm going to cause somebody else pain because I can't handle my own, this is what you're left with is this sort of, you know, because not only does she not get the man that she loves, she has killed him. Now she doesn't know that, I don't ever know if she, she knows that Omniris is, I mean, that Aida's in the tomb. I don't think so. I don't think How so. This is know? all oh, about, no. yeah, it's all about Well, in this production, Rodimus. she could kind of like look up. And I could look up and be like, ha <laughs> oh, okay. The tomb oh, is very small. <laughs> it is very small. small. And it, for some reason, I'm underneath. I don't really understand that. I don't get that, yeah. Apparently that was supposed to be some sort of um, kind of tomb in the heavens. But they're closer to heaven and I'm still on earth. Okay. I wasn't here for the original no, production there. thinking, so... Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, but there is a lot about war and there is a lot about sort of standing, you know, you're, you're past standing for right and wrong. Now you're just standing for your country. I mean, you know, Amneris doesn't, I don't think she cares one way or another what her country does. I mean, as far as going to war, she just wants her to, you know, she hears we're going to war with the Ethiopians. Aida's an Ethiopian, yay. That's all she really cares about. You know, she doesn't really mm-hmm. know anything else. Um, I see that we have four minutes, and that, so we have time for two brief final questions. The first being, have either one of you visited Egypt before? And if so, and if you haven't, would you want to go? Absolutely. I'd love to go. I'd love to go. Maybe in a few years when things calm down I was just going to say, I would like a little more <laughs> calm in the, that area. But yeah. And my other question is... Um, you know, for all but the, for probably like the first three decades in the history of this opera, it has been documented on recording. So we really know what very early interpreters of this piece did with it. And I'm wondering, in your first experience of the piece simply as a listener, did anyone particularly inspire you and give you a sort of standard for what these roles were not just your role, but the other principal roles in this piece, what they were supposed to sound like. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think the big, I mean, for me, Casotto, listening to Casotto do for the first time, you know, that was just like, well, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, all right, that's it. That print, you know. Mario Del Monaco. I mean, all the big, the big voices. And for me, Maria Callas, I mean. Yeah. Amazing. Homage. Yeah, she just, she captures all of it. And she throws in a nice high E flat at one point, too. So. I know, which you're itching to do. I know it. Oh, she yeah. wants to throw in that high, and she does it in the triumphal scene, yeah? Yeah. At the end of the triumphal yeah. Have you ever on stage done? No, the last conductor wouldn't let me do it. No, he it. wouldn't let you And I've it. only done Aida once, so this is only my second Aida. So but this conductor's be willing. Be listening He's out willing. there. You oh, too, so, my dear. So if the spirit So if the spirit comes over you, you think you might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am a high note slut. <laughs> oh, no, that was on recording. Oh, no. <laughs> That's going to be a sound bite all over you. Sound bite. Yes, I am a high well, note slut. Yes. These ladies have a dress rehearsal tomorrow, so we better end here. So thank you very much, Sandra and Jill. That was wonderful. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, 
the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. Thank you.